Hey y'all, it's Tommy. Today's episode of Southbound is a replay of my 2020 conversation with comedian Roy Wood Jr. It's an interesting look back at the early days of COVID and how it affected not only Wood's comedy, but his ability to perform. Since our talk, Wood has become an even bigger star in the comedy world. He had the coveted headline slot at this year's White House Correspondence Dinner. And he's in the midst of a tour that takes him through Lexington, Kentucky in August, and then to Atlanta, Durham, and Charlotte in September. Go see him if you can. In the meantime, enjoy our conversation. All right, so let's make sure that thing is one, two, one, two. Okay, all right, there we go. We're good to go now. We're rolling. Give you a sync clap in three, two, one. Thanks for counting us down, Roy Wood Jr. Hey, y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Roy Wood Jr. has spent his career telling jokes with sharp edges. He grew up in Birmingham and has spent more than 20 years doing stand-up, returning again and again to his experiences as a black man and a southerner. For the last five years, he's also been a correspondent for The Daily Show, often coming back to the South to poke fun at our contradictions and absurdities. We happened to talk on the day most of the world found out that President Trump had tested positive for COVID-19. Wood was already on the case. Here's our conversation. We're catching each other at a uh, on a momentous day, I guess, for news. The uh, Woke up this morning. I woke up this morning. Some people went to bed last night knowing that the president and the first lady had tested positive for coronavirus. And half of Congress is shut down, too. But keep going. Yes, there's a lot more news, a lot of layers. In your job, like, just describe what last night or this morning or whenever you found out, what was that like for you? Well, I found out live. I happened to be up last night doing um, some technical work. And I think somewhere around one o'clock in the morning, I think that started bubbling up to the surface. Maybe it was 1230 a.m. Um, and for me, if we're talking about it as a daily show contributor and correspondent, I immediately go into work mode, which is, OK, what are all of the facts? You cannot write a joke until you have the facts and you're just collecting, collecting facts. So for me, it's when I'm trying to mind for humor, I kind of go to two different places. The first one is what are the facts? And then what does this mean? What are the implications of this? And like, and you know, we're recording this, you know, the sun isn't even completely in the sky yet. And we're still figuring out, okay, well, if half of the Senate that's supposed to be confirming, um, you know, justice, well, I can't call her justice, but judge, you know, was it Cooper, Amy Barrett? Okay. Does that mean she doesn't get confirmed before the election now because the president, like, what is that? Like, what is the fallout? What are the ripple effects? We know the story is Trump has Corona. Okay, fine. But I just feel like the job at The Daily Show is to find that extra prism, that extra part of the analysis of it all and figure out what that means and find jokes in that. That's Roy, the correspondent. Roy, the comedian goes, oh, hell yeah. I can't wait to get on stage. 
So I'm wondering, have you already, like, do you have jokes in your head already now that you're doing or you have, like, stuff sketched out? No, it I it'll be it'll be at least three weeks before I have anything about Trump and this because I the first thing I like to do is see what every other comedian's gonna say first. I like to comb Twitter, I like to study other people. Um and this is not an offense to anyone on Twitter, but my feeling is just always if a non-comedian could come up with a particular premise, then it's not clever enough for me. I'm supposed to be the professional. So you need a time. You need time for the memes to disseminate. You need time for the jokes to be stolen and regurgitated by multiple people on multiple social media platforms, and then you know what all the jokes are. You know, there's the like already. I've seen you know some edgier stuff. You know, um, uh, Joe Biden's son gave him Corona so he could come talk trash to his face. You know. And then someone replied, well, that would imply that Trump is going to heaven. So that's not true. And like there's 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 people saying that, you know, Herman Cain is lonely. And that's why like there's a lot of different weird. And but I need to know that I need to know everything that's being said so that I can know what's the most original place. And more often than not. It's very difficult to be first and be original when it comes to humor. And so, you know, it, for my standup, I choose to, you know, let it sit. The Daily Show, you just need to be first because, you know, in, literally in 24 hours, the news cycle, it changed. Matter of fact, our, um, our email for the end of the day had already gone out before the Trump news broke. Like that, you know, every night, you know, after the show, you know, the writers, you know, it's kind of a here's here's what we're here's the stories we're tracking think of jokes around this but let's also monitor the news i can guarantee you half the stuff that was in that email last night we ain't talking about today so what's kind of like on a on a normal day if there are normal days like what's your deadline on the daily show like when do you have to be whatever you guys have written when does it have to be done i would say that it's usually pencils down around five or six o'clock you know I'm not really in, you know, because we're doing the social distance show now, I'm not really in with Trevor and everyone and what they do, you know, in studio, it was, you know, we didn't tape until 630, you know, sometimes it's late as seven, but you know, the satellite truck was also right there. You know, we're in a situation now where, you know, Trevor and the director, they have to shoot the show and then you have to upload HD 4k files. So you need an extra two hours of buffer to get everything to the sat truck. And then the sat truck itself has to beam that up to the satellite to disseminate down globally. So there's a little bit more lead time, but I honestly, ever since we left the studio, I haven't been able to nail that down, but I will say as a correspondent, I've never taped a segment after 4.30 in the afternoon. So I'm just wondering in general, you know, I've, I've seen so many regular folks just talk about how exhausting this whole since the pandemic and everything else happened these last six months have been. And I'm wondering if somebody who uses this, all these things that have happened as material, are you exhausted or energized or somewhere in between? Like what is, what effect has this had on kind of your day-to-day life? Um, I would say that the more stressful days are the ones involving, you know, 
police reform and protest and when you hear about another black body in the street those are the days where it's like uh, there's no jokes here but what are we going to say what am i going to try to say what is my feeling and you know i think the the thing that i uh, my advice to anyone is to lean into it because you're trying to block all that stuff you just become emotionally constipated you know you got to let that stuff out and so you know there are days where there's more news than you can handle and that could become frustrating but then there's also days where there's still a world like you know you live in front of the camera you know cameras turn off and i have to walk out into this world still as a father and a regular american citizen and raise a child in this country so you do become concerned when you see the way certain things are starting to unfold that can become very stressful and you know you think about all right well how am i going to teach my son about interacting with the police and you know and and thinking about that, you know, that's that, you know, the, the biggest concern that I have is in knowing that there is a countdown clock from when my, from when my toddler will eventually be perceived as a man and no longer a boy. And the problem is that I don't have the clock. The world does. So it's, you know, it's figuring out how much of his childhood to allow him to enjoy versus how much of his manhood to prepare him for. And that's a sliding scale that, you know, some days I'm less paranoid about it, some days I'm more. And, you know, there's not a lot of jokes in that, you know, so there are days where you wake up and you go, ah, oh, God. You're in an interesting spot because so many of us look to people like you to somehow find the humor in this or somehow come up with some sort of explanation that helps us get through the day. You know, you're how we cope. So how do you cope? Like, what do you do? Or what, what do you look for when you're struggling with that? My mental cigarette is Sudoku, Jigsaw Puzzles, and PlayStation. Those are by three. Um, you know, I enjoy talking with my son and, you know, he's four. So we have to talk about Paw Patrol and he has to tell me for the 90th time that an articulated bus has three doors on one side. And I go, I know, bro, <laughs> I can count too. You're not the only one who can count. You know, kids love to show you something that they can do. Like you don't know how to do it. That's an oven. Really? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so you know, those are my things. And I still have stand-up, thankfully. And I haven't gone on stage since February. Um, this month, I'm going out for the first time. This I'm, I'm performing tomorrow night in Connecticut. And this will be my first time on stage since February 29th in Pittsburgh. So what does that feel like? Um, as a performer, it's scary because, I, you know, the muscle atrophies. 20 years of comedy, I've never gone more than two weeks on purpose. I had to sit down for a month because I had vocal issues. But other than that, in 20 years, I've never gone six, seven months. We're talking seven months without touching a microphone. It, you know, and the comedians I've talked to, they all, it's weird because I feel like an open micer all over again, asking more seasoned comics, what's it like up there? Is it, are you scared? Did the people cough at you? 
Or did they laugh? How far were the chairs? And they're just like, dude, just go do it. You know, just go do it. And so, you know, I sat and monitored New York City for about two months and other comics in the tri-state and the safety of the shows and whether or not there were positive COVID tests amongst performers. And, you know, everything seemed to be promising enough to make me feel comfortable enough to go do some outdoor shows. So, you know, that's what I'm going to go do. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. Now, back to our conversation with Roy Wood Jr. Even though you live in New York now, you're from Birmingham, or grew up there at least part of the time. And I know your Twitter handle says, bury me in Alabama. Absolutely. And and you go there, have gone there quite a bit for The Daily Show to different places in the South. And I think one of your jobs, I don't know if this was your intention, but it's certainly become one of your things, is sort of to explain the South to the rest of the world through your comedy. And I'm wondering how you feel like things are like down here now in your visits and talking to family and stuff. Have things changed profoundly since you grew up? What What's the same and what's different? How can I put it? Southern cities have changed, but many Southern states remain the same. You know, I think there's a lot of confliction at the state and city level and a lot of markets in terms of, you know, what they think versus, you know, a great example would be Asheville. If we're just going to talk North Carolina for a second, Asheville is a beaming example of a place that 20 years ago, if you'd have told me that that's what Asheville would be and it'd be artsy and craft beer and festivals i'd be like man get out of here man that's Asheville. that's where you stop on the way to gatlinburg (laughs) no man it's different trust me it's different man so you know you look at places like montgomery alabama who just elected their first black mayor in the history of the town you know and montgomery is literally where the civil rights movement started so you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of optimism in the South. And there are a lot of good people in the South. There are a lot of good people doing positive things in the South. You know, Nashville has morphed into something that is culturally different from what it was. It's way, it ain't just country music no more, my friend. Nashville is very close to becoming a tech hub, the same as Silicon Valley. And the way Corona ruined the rent market in San Francisco, it's only going to add to its growth. Same thing goes for Austin, Texas. So this premonition and assumption that the South is one big ball of negativity it's false it's not a narrative that i support of course there's craziness i'll keep it real i'm the first one to tell you i came home um 
we took two months down to, we drove down to Birmingham so my son could spend some time with his grandma and nobody was wearing masks. And this was a month or two before things really flared up in the South in, you know, May and June. <laughs> that was very indicative of, you know, the Southern experience, a lot of stubbornness, you know, and as a result, a lot of cases, you know, but to act like there's nobody down there doing anything. And that's the thing that really, and I'm not going to say I'm at the Daily Show in every meeting going, man, Trevor, let me go down south and show these people. It's just if you look at stories where there's a lot of change and things happening, a lot of it is happening in the South. And I just don't want people to get caught up in what the South was and more so look at what it could be. I, I, I realize in asking that question, I sort of made an assumption. But let me go ahead and, and just gonna ask it directly. Do you feel like one of your goals in what you do, you know, not just in the Daily Show, but in your stand-up, is to kind of bring that nuanced perspective about the South. Yeah, I mean, I already know my destiny is to go back to Alabama and just teach younger people the game, so they can go fly higher than I flew. Because the only people who are going to fix the South is Southerners. No one else gives a damn about us, man. And so when you look at the problems in the South, the people that are going to facilitate the solutions, they're going to be Southerners. You know, you know, people try to like the South in spite of, you know, I like, I hate Florida, but you know, but Miami, I like Miami. I don't like Georgia, but I like Atlanta. Atlanta's cool. Atlanta's cool. I don't know New Orleans, but I don't know about the rest of that state. So, you know, there's, there's an opportunity in what I do to inform people about the things that they don't know about this world that has already had a lot of stereotypes to it. And it's also the reason why a lot of my standup is about dissecting the black experience, because I think black people to a degree in black culture is very parallel to the same types. It's a bit, we're very prone to the same types of prejudices that, you know, that are put at the feet of the South, you know? You think it's one way, but if I can spin it and make you laugh, maybe I can make you see it another, or give you a different lens to look at this through. And your and your bit about how black people basically don't write patriotic songs and the reasons for that. I mean, we'll cover a song, but like we don't write no original patriotic song. Black artists ain't never because we got a conflicted relationship with the country. You can't write no honest patriotic song. You got to leave that to white artists. They ain't had a good time. You had a good time in America, you're damn right. You should be writing the patriotic, and I'm proud to be an American, but at least I know I'm be serious. You couldn't possibly expect that level of patriotism from a race of people that have so many issues, you can't. It's not realistic. Black people, don't. we don't sing about America. We sing about specific cities where you can have a good-ass time. That's what we do. I guess I'm wondering, because those are bits from three, four, five years ago. Do you feel like the rest of the world is sort of catching up to what you've been saying all this time? Yeah, uh, Chris Rock said in the interview recently, you know, because a lot of old Chris Rock is starting to surface around the internet now and how crazy it is that jokes that he wrote 10 and 15 years ago 
20 years ago even are still as relevant today <laughs> as they were back then and it's like oh that's cool but then it also means nothing's really changed so it makes you sad and so you know i just i'm happy that the material is there to help be a conduit of conversation to people who may actively want to inform themselves on what's happening with their fellow americans so if we're nothing more than a tool of information i'm cool with it i know like like me you uh big sports fan you know, as sports has come back this last couple of months, do you feel like it's been the solace that we often find in it? And has it been enough to to make you feel better in some of these times? Um, I mean, it's nice to have something on TV, but I what I've enjoyed is that sports has been the great disruptor. You know, even if people are... Like, you know, people wanted sports to come back to have something to get their mind off of everything. Surprise! <laughs> it's full of kneeling and paint on the court and no racism slogans. So you lose. Like, you know, that part, like, I love I loved the fact on Monday Night Football. Uh, was it Thursday Night Football week one at the Chiefs where they booed the moment of unity? Oh, I loved it. I loved that they were angry. And I just, I hate that there's not enough people in the stands to have some decency shoved down their damn throats. Like that's, if anything, I like sports is at its best when it's being an adjutant to conversation. So, you know, like when the, oh man, when the NBA shut down, when the Bucks refused to play for that day. Oh yeah. I wanted more. I wanted them to not shut the whole league down. Like that would have been, worse than the league not coming back at all and so you know those types of moments starting to happen i think that's a i think that's a good thing the question becomes are you going to sustain it you've given money to all the causes and you've walked out on fields and held hands and etc cetera, etc cetera. but if you're not putting more diversity in your front office if you're not putting more diversity on the sidelines with your head coaches and your managers it's all lip service um but in the short has it been fun to have something to watch other than divorce court and jeopardy reruns yes do you watch nascar at all and would michael jordan owning a team with bubba wallace be enough to get you to watch nascar one i watched nascar um i actually don't watch the stock cars. I watched the truck, the um, truck series, because uh, my son is big into pickup trucks. So we just watch truck series on Saturday. That, that's what we do. You know, um, I've been a fan of NASCAR. You know, all the way back. You know, Davey Allison, Ernie Irvin. You know, Robert Yates, the, the twenty-eight Texaco. That was my, that was my car, right? And so. Jordan being a part of it, I think is good because Jordan is competitive and he hates losing. I wouldn't be surprised if Jordan don't start trying to drive the car himself. He like, get out of there, rookie. Let me show you how to drive. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I think Bubba Wallace joining the team and forming, you know, this black black NASCAR Avengers. <laughs> you know, we'll see. At the end of the day. I, this is terrible to say, but when you talk about inclusion in sports and cultural and changing cultural norms, it only happens if the athlete is good. 
Michael Sam was the first openly gay NFL player. He wasn't that great, or at least teams didn't give him a chance, you know, whichever way you want to spin it. And it opened and started the conversation. But what sucks is that when you're a minority trying to break through and really trying to get people to look at something differently, you have to win because we're so stupid in this country. We think only winners have something worthwhile to say, you know, so sooner or later, Bubba Wallace is going to have to be Lewis Hamilton. Otherwise he's just going to be another driver who's screaming about issues that no one's going to listen to him on. And also by not winning, you're not given a big enough platform to spit your stuff to enough people for it to be heard, you know? So, you know, we'll see, you know, it's, I definitely support Bubba Wallace with what he's doing. I definitely hope that he knows that the black community has his back in spite of, you know, the vitriol that he's had over there. But, you know, NASCAR is a North Carolina based sport. Michael Jordan is the son of the state. So hopefully this one will work out. Okay. It's not like Steve Spurrier came and <laughs> run. <into the> <laughs> uh, Roy, I want to ask you one last thing, you know, we've talked about, a lot of relatively unimportant issues, but I want to talk about something really important. Um, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, you went pretty hard on pimento cheese. <laughs> as, as a Georgian by birth, a Southerner my entire life, I wept. I was furious. <laughs> I, was, I was angry at your move against something that I honestly had no idea any Southerner might not love and enjoy. Please explain yourself. I've never understood it. I've never understood it. And and we talked me being a Southerner. I'm I'm biscuits and gravy. I'm sweet tea till I die. I'm cheese grits. I'm Waffle House but I can just never be pimento cheese. And then someone goes, it was just cheese and mayonnaise. Don't you put that on a burger? Yeah, but it's the intermingling of the two. There's something about it that I just don't trust. And my dad used to, my dad used to go to Western supermarket in Birmingham and he would come home with a big tub of pimento cheese and he'd sit there with Keebler club crackers and just dunk and eat and dunk and eat. And I just, I, I even eat South meat. Like I, I love sauce meat, head cheese, all that. Give me all of that. But the pimento, man, I just, I just, I've tried, I've tried. Roy, you you likened it to an almond joy. It is the almond joy of cheeses. It is. A, what what would you rather me say? You want me to say what you call it? At least a what you call it has a commercial. And, <laughs> you know, it's got high. It's got better shelf space than the almond joy. You know, I don't know. I, maybe I should rethink it. Now, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back around to it. But no, I, I appreciate your courage, standing up for this, obviously, you know, heretical stance. Pimento cheese and room temperature dill pickles. Uh, you'll just never get me behind it. You just, I can't. They're just in a jar by the counter at a store. How long have they been in this jar? I need something refrigerated. Maybe I'm just being bougie. I don't know. Pardon me for liking my pickles at 41 degrees. Roy Wood Jr. lives in New York. 
But as you heard him say during our conversation, he feels like his destiny is to one day come home to Alabama. Millions of black Americans have done the same over the last 30 years or so, reversing some of the great migration from the South that happened from the 19-teens through the 70s. Now the South is still a place that can be fraught for anybody looking for true equality. But in the cities especially, there are places that are unmistakably Southern, but also unmistakably modern. There are places where people can feel the truth behind Roy Wood Jr.'s humor, but still laugh at the jokes. There are places, in fact, where the best parts of the South come together in one smooth, savory blend. Kind of like pimento cheese. Gotcha, Roy. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.